it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for Labor Day week, the week of September 6th, 2017. On this week's show, Spencer Hall of SB Nation will join us to talk about the first big college football weekend and how to get yourself fired, probably, by blowing a 34-point lead in under 20 minutes. Go Aggies! Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders will also be here for a conversation about the NFL and tanking, whether teams like the Bills, Browns, and Jets are going to usher in a new era of losing on purpose. And finally, we'll interview Ed Cunningham, the announcer who quit his job with ESPN because of his ethical concerns about football and brain injuries. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Labor Day weekend was a great sports weekend. I watched a lot. I came out of it feeling very pro sports. I've decided, Stefan, I am a sports fan now. Did it, did it rekindle your love of sports? I don't think I ever actually liked it sports. It kindled but your I, love of sports. I like it now. There yeah. were good games. There was lots of games on. I watched way too much television. Too much games? Too much games. Lots of tennis. Lots of soccer. Did you catch Azerbaijan against San Marino? I did not, but I was on the watch ESPN thingamabobber because I was watching various side courts of U.S. Open tennis, as one does, and noticed that they were showing a European World Cup qualifier between the Faroe Islands and Andorra, comma, in Spanish, which I was wondering <laughs> if that was the least watched stream in ESPN history it or if, be, it was it so, been... if it was so undesirable that it kind of came around to being desirable again. Oh, I would have, yeah, the latter, definitely. I mean, at the very least, it had to be one of the, 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 the games involving the fewest inhabitants of the two places. Competing against one another? Faroe Islands won Andorra nil. It was, a, it was a tight game. Predictable outcome. In the Faroe Islands. Don't fuck with the Faroe Islands at home. Now it is time for the non-Faroe Islands content of the show, which will be ample. Uh, here's a premise. College football fans are very angry much of the time, but particularly angry in early September. Here's my evidence to support said premise. The college football offseason is very, very long, maybe the longest of all the offseasons. You've got eight months about between the bowl game and the season opener. So you're going to have a whole lot invested in that first game. Optimism, rebirth, new players, new coordinators. Now consider that there are so few games that any fuck up is going to be devastating to your team's hopes of having a championship caliber season. So let's now go to Atlanta, where Florida State lost to Alabama 24-7 to and lost its quarterback, Mr. Francois, to a season-ending knee injury. That is not good. But mostly, let's go to Los Angeles, where Texas A&M was up 44-10 to over UCLA late in the third quarter and somehow managed to lose 45-44. to It was so bad, in fact, that a Texas A&M regent posted on Facebook that Aggies coach Kevin Sumlin should be fired. He recruits well, but can't coach the big games or the close games, wrote Houston lawyer Tony Busby. Our players were better tonight. Our players were more talented tonight. But our coaches were dominated on national TV yet again. 
I'm only one vote on the Board of Regents. When the time comes, my vote will be that Kevin Sumlin needs to go and go was in all capital letters. Joining us now is Spencer Hall of SB Nation, who has somehow a controlling interest on the Texas A&M Board of Regents. We also got his phone number from Hugh Freeze's call log. Uh, Spencer, thank you for joining us. I mean, that just means I know how to party, right? (laughs) That's definitely true. Was this uh, an innovation in college football uh, coach firing lore, the regent immediately taking to Facebook after the game? Well, if you don't know, you need to know something about him because it makes the story even richer. This isn't just a, a regent going after a guy on Facebook, right? This is a regent who has a boardroom in his office where the handles are shark. They're like shark-shaped <laughs> door handles. Are they made of shark, too? I don't know. There they're appear to be some sort of chrome or maybe silver, but I will tell you this. I don't really put Tony Busby past putting some piece of shark in there just so later on he can declare that, yeah, that I, I put the shark in there. If you search, by the way, Tony Busby, the images of him, they're amazing. They're always like boats. That That's who he is. Now, can Tony I, Busby. Can I, can, I just, can I interject here and just uh, read a couple of the responsibilities of the Texas A&M System Board of Regents? Just yeah, to be clear what Tony Busby's <laughs> job here is, oversee the administration and set policy direction for the system's 11 universities and seven state agencies, ensure a quality undergraduate and graduate education experience for all students, promote academic research and technology to benefit the state of Texas and the nation, disseminate programs of the A&M system across the state through outreach and public service efforts, and support the state legislative and higher education leadership to position Texas at the forefront of higher education nationally. I don't see anything on there about uh, calling for the football coach to be fired. No, but let me tell you, Tony Busby's kind of a badass. So if he wants it to happen, he will. Busby Busby got the largest jury verdict ever, again, or the largest jury verdict against BP ever, and that's a real long list. He was uh, an infantry officer with combat experience in the Marine Corps. Uh, he is not. He has not only represented like what man on earth can say that he represented everyone from Rick Perry to Jimmy Buffett. Like this is, if this man has you in his sights, it's over. And, and frankly, we could have said all that before we even got to, you blew a 44 10 lead a 44 10 lead and you blew it. And no one will say this out loud. You blew it to a pack 12 team. <laughs> Do you buy the premise that there is no kind of, more upsetting defeat for a sports fan than an opening week, just complete turd bomb in a college football season. No, you're done. That's it. You're broken. There's no way you get over this. Everybody. There's not. We're talking everybody. Fans, players, coaches, boards Mm -hmm. of regents. No, mail in the week, mail in the month, mail in the year. It's, it's over. This is Kevin Sumlin won't survive. In fact, like I, you know, if they win like seven or eight games, there's no way they survive this because because they'll still look back and go, "Hey, you remember when we blew that 44-10 lead to UCLA?" And that'll be it. And this would be, by the way, the case 
because this is all Kevin Sumlin has done since Johnny Manziel graduated is float around that like seven or eight win mark and lose at home. Remember, they 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 did up Kyle Field, redid Kyle Field, turned it into this massive football palace, and their record there has been abysmal. They've been bad um, elsewhere. They've been real bad at home. So a lot of this schadenfreude is the results of a college football season, the start of the season, that's much, much stronger than it had been, you know, four or five, 10 years ago. So there's just so much more opportunity for fan bases to be sad and angry, which I think we can all be grateful for. Like that, that Alabama Florida state game was by, I think, uh, metrics. I'm going to use the word metrics. It was like the best week one game maybe ever. Yeah. In terms of metrics. And that's why you really should never, ever trust big data, ever. Are you saying that wasn't a good football game, Spencer? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, how, how, got different languages? You want me to spray paint it on the side of a building? That game was crap. That game was dismal to watch. And that's, you know, my favorite. Like, Alabama's a joke to me now because what they do has nothing to do with the rest of college football. They just happen to play against everybody else. It's such an overmanaged, overdetermined. Like, I know Nick Saban's a really successful football coach. He'd be the worst boss in the world because there would be no shortage in another industry of him calling meetings and outside consultants and different things. Like, like, did you see that shot? And I've mentioned this several times, but I want to keep pushing it. Did you see that shot of their analysts? They said, well, here's the Alabama coaching staff. And it's this massive group of people. And then they show like a different box and they go, oh, here's their offensive analysts. Like they have the <laughs> Rand Corporation working. <laughs> Mark, on how my, to- Mark Tracy has a piece about this in the New York Times today. And they basically it's like every septuagenarian former head coach has an opportunity to work for the Alabama football program. They're only getting paid you know, like 90 or 100 grand a year for their for their analytical services. By far. They're not like coaches. By far and away, I'm disappointed in you, Spencer. The best moment in that Alabama game came when they showed the totally insane, incredibly highly paid strength coach, Scott Cochran, on the mm-hmm. sidelines, who we've discussed before. And they just sh- they showed him just holding up four fingers for the entirety of the fourth quarter because he's just that strong that he doesn't need to put his hand down. But mm-hmm. they showed him just like popping some like unidentified pill or substance and (laughs) just like downing it with a glass of water. And they're just like, we have no idea what's going on. This, this maybe explains everything or nothing, but we're just going to like move on. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't really need to explain anything about Scott Cochran. You just show him and dare you to comprehend anything happening with him. Yeah. They, the game was dismal because I just love that that many people got together because this is something that, a lot of coaches will tell you they're not really sure who the offensive line coach is, and they're not really sure who the coordinator really is. They're titles, but Alabama runs things as this kind of vast consultancy. So you're not – people will tell you. They'll go, oh, yeah, no, that's their offensive line coach. But it's really this old guy you've never heard of. So there's this council of elders and other sort of vagabond coaches that are enlisted. And, yeah, they only make 90 to 100 grand for that. How many of them are there? Like, how many? Like, I, I guarantee you, this works for football, but if you looked at, like, Nick Saban's org chart, if anyone ever actually ferreted it out of the building on pain of death so that everyone could see it, management consultants would, would go haywire. They'd be like, I have no idea how this works. You have, like, 5,000 people on the payroll. 
some for simple tasks like long snapper. I bet there's like three consultants for long snapping. <laughs> I was just happy that an unwatchable Alabama game did not involve LSU for the first time in, in a decade. Uh, I, I, hey, man, they, they did all kinds of fancy stuff against BYU. That was great. We're excited. Can we go back to UCLA and Texas A&M for a moment? Sure. We haven't talked about UCLA. And I'm conflicted about this because on the one hand, Josh Rosen, outspoken, kind of like Josh Rosen telling the NCAA to go fuck itself and then going out and bringing a team back from 34 points Going out and getting Kevin Sumlin fired. Fired. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it validates Jim Mora a little bit. So I think every time UCLA does something good this season, we are going to be tugged between our instinct to love the kid who is calling out the NCAA's hypocrisy and hating the fact that he is working for this consummate asshole. Well, that's week one, right? Like, this is the, let's all jump in the deep end and then realize, oh, man, this is, this is, data is inconclusive and long-term trends might be more confusing <laughs> than we previously anticipated, right? For instance, yeah, UCLA won. And I know UCLA fans after that thought, now we're stuck with Jim Mora. Tennessee fans are in the same position because they thought, well, all right, we're, we're just going to tank it against Georgia Tech, I guess, and. Now we can finally get on the business of firing Butch Jones because nobody likes Butch Jones. I don't know if Butch Jones likes Butch Jones. Look at him. He doesn't look happy with himself. Nobody's really happy with him. He He's did the create guy. the innovation of the turnover garbage can on the sideline. <laughs> the trash can. Which, did you see that, Stefan? I did not see that. When, oh, yeah. No. When Tennessee like gets a turnover. Seven on the side or something. When Tennessee gets a turnover, the defensive player who uh, – acquires the turnover, goes to the sideline and dunks the ball into a trash can that's held aloft. But as you know, a football is small and the opening of a trash can is large. And yet the guy uh, who got like basically the game turning around turnover managed to miss the dunk. Completely? It didn't pop out? (laughs) It 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 popped out. Wow. It popped out. Someone should be fired. That would never happen at Alabama. We know that. Well, that's because they would have had a uh, garbage can holding coach. To ensure technical quality, quality control. These things we know are true. So a couple of the other big stories from this past weekend were Liberty, uh, which employs Baylor's fired athletic director, fired for uh, extremely good reason, beat Baylor in the feel-bad game of this or any season. What what were your thoughts on that, Spencer? Well, you should know a couple of things. One, you should know that the quarterback in question is a guy's nickname was Buckshot. And he went to Carroll City, and he's like this extremely white-looking white boy who played for Carroll City in Miami. Uh, He has a prom picture where he is posing. I think it's a prom picture. He's posing on the back of a Corvette that is painted to look like the American flag. Um, His nickname is Buckshot. Did I mention that? (laughs) He's got like... It's better than other flags that could have been painted on that Corvette. (laughs) <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he went to Carroll City. He would not last long with it painted any other flag. That's than what the I was. American that's what I was there. thinking. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. And he go, he went to Liberty. And the time I'm thinking, I didn't get the joy of watching Jim McMahon play right at BYU. This had to be what it was like, right? Like you're like, what's that guy doing there? And uh, yeah, that's what he's doing there. He could get a gig there. He got a starting gig. And yeah, they beat Baylor. Now, I think this is another one of those like happy jump, sad jump mixed 
sort of conclusions for anyone watching that because you go, oh, man, Baylor lost. That's cool. I was mad at Baylor. And you're like, well, Liberty won. So it's, it's not that much different. And you know who Liberty hired? Baylor's old athletic director, Ian there, McCaw. There are no heroes here. No, 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 no. Only Buckshot. I will take Buckshot as a hero and him alone. Let's try to have one segment conversation here about a, a, a game that we can unanimously agree was uplifting and morally not conflicting. And that would be Howard beating the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now, much was made of the fact that this was the greatest point spread upset possibly ever. 45 points. In college football. And then I was wondering, wait a minute, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas has a football team and they're going to be favored by 45 points over somebody? Should there be some, some discounting here, Spencer? Plenty, yeah. I mean, I think it's now that people are paying attention, right? Like, they're like, oh, we, well, we know the spread now, right? And every game's televised, so if this happens, we definitely know it. There's a few other factors that really play into this one that we now have that number thanks to USC Stanford 2007, right? Like, who's the largest uh, underdog ever? You're like, well, it was Stanford versus USC because everyone can say I think it was a 41.5 spread at the time. And that that to me is still like like FBS versus FBS, the largest upset ever, right? Like that that to me actually, if you said like, is that bigger than App State Michigan? I think it is because App State, Michigan, people forget that App State was really, really good. Like they were phenomenal. I think they were the three time national champions at the at the FCS level at the time. Well, like, yeah, um, like people misunderstand like what FCS is and think that there's like not actually a continuum between. It's like these guys are still like really good football players. It's not like App State versus Michigan was like, you know guys who are great at football versus people who like had never played before. Yeah. And, and this too, that the chief difference is depth, right? Like at the FBS level, you're just stocking people so that if you get an injury in a game or if you want to rotate people out, you're going to have the depth to wear people down. If you have an FCS team that hits things just right, everybody lined up is going to be competitive with everyone they're facing, right? It's just when you get into that second spot that things start to slip a little bit. And, you know, you have Cam Newton's little brother leading Howard on this. You have it happening late so that people can sort of notice it. And UNLV being favored by that much says to me that, like, that's less an upset and more an error in calculation by people putting money on this game. By the way, if you're putting money on UNLV Howard, (laughs) dog. We gotta have we gotta have a conversation. We gotta still, have a spirit. We gotta have a spiritual exchange about your priorities in life. Still, still a pretty good story. The Kalen Newton is like five foot three, one hundred and twelve pounds. He's not mm-hmm. a big quarterback like his brother. The coach at Howard, Howard, by the way, historically black college um, in D.C. Not a football powerhouse by any stretch. The but they hired the Bison. They hired that was the mm-hmm. first little league team, the Bison. So I was I root for Howard. There's two things. There's two things I want to note about Howard there. One that um, I believe is Kalen Newton. Uh, He is. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's bow legged. That's one of those things, which, by the way, they're like bow legged. We were a little worried about that. That's for me. If I'm recruiting, I'm like, oh, yeah, get the bow legged kid. No one else will take that guy's (laughs) going to be awesome. Right. Like, like if you are if you're at all a fan of old football, like crazy legs, Hirsch, that's a first teamer. 
You know why? He had like a slight deformity in his foot, and that's why they called him Crazy Legs. By the way, that was something you used to be able to say. You used to be able to just call like, oh, he's got a deformity in his foot. We should be sensitive about that. Not the NFL in the 50s, y'all. Call him Crazy Legs. That would be funny if this was like Howard's Moneyball approach and that that's why they've been mispriced (laughs) is that all of their players are bow-legged. They just get everybody who has kind of a non-harmful physical aberration of any sort, right? Like Slewfoot Williams out on the <laughs> wide receiver. He's he's amazing. You know? Gap tooth Willie. He's he's over linebacker. Yeah. Like there's there's all kinds of like interesting recruiting bits that like for me are are fascinating about who falls to FCS. And that's one. The second thing is Howard's named the bison because they are named after the Buffalo Soldiers because their first coach who really made them good, mm-hmm. uh, chose that team name as inspiration. If there's a bison or buffalo-related fact, I'll get you to know it in the podcast. Spencer, yeah. And they hired the former coach of, of Virginia. They didn't hire some high Mike London, coach. Yeah. yeah. No. Who, in addition to that, former vice cop. So like he's, it's like you're hiring security and a coach all in one move. At Alabama, they don't have to hire security and coaches. They can hire both. They did get a they did get a sack from a guy who got shot last week. I want to point that out too. Alabama did. So week two, we've got Clemson, Auburn, and Ohio State, Oklahoma. The early year good non conference games continue. So that's exciting for those of us who want half of those fan bases to be sad. Spencer Hall is with SB Nation. He also knows facts about uh, Tony Busby. Thank you, and Spencer, Bison. and Bison too, and Bison. My brand is strong. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, y'all. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The NFL season starts this week, and fans of every team hope this will be their year, except for Jets fans, because it won't be their year. No chance, no way. Same for the Browns and the Bills. Let's start with the Jets, who last week traded standout defensive lineman Sheldon Richardson to the Seattle Seahawks for receiver Jermaine Curse and a second-round draft pick. That would be an odd deal for them to make if they wanted to win games, which leads one to ask the question, do the New York Jets want to win games? In the offseason, they got rid of veteran players Darrell Rivas, Eric Decker, Brandon Marshall. They're going into the year with a plan to start Josh McCown at quarterback, whose claim to fame is that he is one of the McCown brothers, the one named Josh, to be exact. When asked back in July about what the Jets are up to, Commissioner Roger Goodell said, I don't think any team tanks. I really don't. But the transactions the Jets and also the Browns and Bills have made going into the season would suggest otherwise. Joining us now to discuss the phenomenon of NFL tanking and whether it might work is Aaron Schatz. Aaron is the proprietor of the website Football Outsiders and the editor of the Football Outsiders Almanac 2017, which you can buy at footballoutsiders.com. Hello, Aaron. Hello. It is good to be here talking about teams that nobody is rooting for. (laughs) So there are two uh, different questions here, um, which are, are teams in the NFL tanking? I think I answered that in the introduction, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. And also, is this a new phenomenon? It strikes me that it's being talked about now a lot more than it ever was. But is that because no teams in the past adopted the strategy? 
Yeah, as far as whether it's happening, I think Roger Goodell's like that see no evil, hear no evil monkey at this point, right? Like he's got to be kidding me with this. It's not happening thing, right? I think so. Or, I mean, I just think that even Adam Silver, who we champion as being very progressive and smart and good at PR, I don't think he openly acknowledges that NBA teams are tanking. So I think it's just as a commissioner, there are certain things that you can't say even if you know that they're true. Right. And what Goodell did actually when he talked about this uh, was define tanking while saying nobody's tanking. He said that, quote, they are looking to sort of say, we need to build more talent here. We'll do it through the draft. Let's let some of our veteran players go and develop some of our younger players. That's pretty much the definition of tanking. Pretty much. And it's, you know, look, as far as whether it's happened in the NFL in the past, uh, look, there are teams in the NFL. First of all, in the NFL, more than in any of the other major American sports, teams cut veterans when they look like they're still useful because players decline much faster than in other sports, right? And the other thing is that the difference in salary between between veterans and rookies is so large that if you get a rookie who does 90% of the stuff for 20% of the price, you do it. So what's the difference between what the Jets and the Browns and Bills are doing and that behavior that you just described, which I think you're right, is fairly typical in the NFL? Is the Probably it's the getting rid of players that do not look to be over the hill, right? Because the other thing is salary cap issues have always been a thing. There have been plenty of teams that have done a year of collapse because of salary cap problems. A really good example is the 49ers in 2004 where they had to cut Jeff Garcia and trade Terrell Owens to the Eagles and trade down. So they traded down twice in the first round and they essentially had a tanking year, right? Like they kept trading down in the draft and they got rid of most of their best players, but that team still kept some veterans and it was only a one year thing. Then after that, they weren't tanking. They were just bad, but they were trying, (laughs) trying and being bad is different than tanking. Right, and the NFL is a little bit of a dicier proposition because it is not impossible. Small sample size of games, large number of players on the roster, a lot of variance in the scheduling. It's not impossible to go from bad to good in a relatively short period of time. Uh, Bill Barnwell had a, a, what I thought was a pretty good primer on tanking on ESPN. The advantages are... There's no draft lottery in the NFL. So if you have the worst record, you're going to get the number one pick. See the Browns who brought in Paul DePodesta to baseball uh, executive. Yeah, to basically implement the baseballish policy of of dumping talent and getting high draft picks and it worked. They got right. Miles Garrett. Um other advantages if you draft a star, he's going to be yours for a long time, possibly for life. Uh, high draft picks have a lot of trade value, which is not the case in other leagues. Disadvantages, one or two players don't change a team dramatically. It's harder to scout players. There's a lot of variance in who's going to be good. And in a 16-game season, it is harder to tank. It's a small sample size. You can't. It's, it's harder to hide it than in an 80-game season like in the NBA. Right. Except for the existence of the draft lottery, the NBA is like the golden zone of tanking because it's the sport where the regular season – Uh, translates to playoff performance more than the others. And it's the sport where a single player will change your team more than the others. So that's why we think of tanking so much in the NBA. 
In the NFL, yeah, you're right. It's a lot harder. But Cleveland, at least, look, there's a difference between Cleveland and the Jets and Bills because Cleveland clearly has a long-term plan. This was meant to be a multi-year process that sort of lasted a little longer, I think, than they originally expected because they still don't have their quarterback. I mean, they might if Deshaun Kaiser turns out to be really good, but we'll see. And if it turns out he's not good this year, they can try to take a quarterback next year. But most of the players that Cleveland has dumped are not quality players. Notice who they didn't trade. <laughs> That's the sad thing about Cleveland is the thing. And who's in their the tanking player, process, they don't even have good players to get rid of. Who's the player that Cleveland has yet to trade despite all of the rumors? Joe about Thomas? Thomas. Joe Thomas. Because I think that the Browns feel that by the time they finally build this thing, Joe Thomas will still be an above-average left tackle because he's a Hall of Famer. But also, isn't there a moral component to this? You don't want to trade Joe Thomas and slot in some sixth-round pick out of East Tennessee because Deshaun Kaiser is going to get killed. Um, yeah, and, but and that the, didn't matter last year. You could have gotten Josh McCown killed. Nobody would have cared. <laughs> so the, 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 mor <laughs> the moral imperative here is that if you're a really shitty team and you're trotting really shitty players out there deliberately – the likelihood of their injury goes up a lot. It's dangerous to put out an incompetent team in the NFL. I also think there's something for what Mike Tanier argued today, another former Football Outsiders writer and writer who still writes for the Football Outsiders Almanac, if I can promote for a second. Promote. Tanier wrote today in Bleacher Report about tanking, and he's sort of down on the whole tanking thing. And he, he feels strongly that teams – you need to have that winning atmosphere with young players because otherwise they get bad habits. And, you know, being from South Jersey and having watched some of the really bad Philadelphia teams of 15 years ago, he does know from what he speaks. He did watch when the Eagles went full co-tight. You know, I mean, he's seen teams, you know, tank. Um, but I think the Browns have much more of a multi-year plan, whereas the Bills, it was like they all of a sudden decided to do this three weeks ago. Well, in the essay and Football Outsiders Almanac about the Jets, I, th I think the argument is that they're not tanking effectively or smartly either, right? Well, because I think their defense is going to be better than people expect. I don't quite know what they can do about that, because the thing is that the defensive players, if, if, they're, if they want to build for the future, you have to build around Leonard Williams. You can't suddenly stop playing Leonard Williams just because he's really good. But there's, you know, plenty of indication that that the Jets defense is going to be average and not bad, which would mean that they may not have the worst record. And I mean, if I'm a player, the players don't want to tank. I would think the players are still playing as hard as possible. And I'm guessing the coaches are still coaching to win. Todd Bowles still wants to win games. So the fact that their defense is going to be average you know, you can't go in there and ask, hey, listen, Leonard, just like don't play as well as usual for the next year or so, and then we'll get you a quarterback, and then you can be awesome again. So Kevin Clark in The Ringer brings up a competitive balance issue, and the NFL has an extremely unbalanced schedule, four-team divisions. Each team plays the other teams in its divisions twice. Two of the teams we talked about, the Jets and the Bills, are in the AFC East. I think everyone's expecting that the Patriots are going to run away with that division and beat those teams a collective four times. But you also have the Dolphins just kind of happily <laughs> hanging out in that division with Jay Cutler and presumably like chomping at the bit to get these easy games on their schedule. So are these teams bad enough or could tanking 
as a larger issue become prevalent enough that it could affect with the unbalanced schedule which teams make the playoffs? Oh, it could. I mean, you know, you could definitely see a situation. Look, last year, Miami was essentially an average team that made the playoffs because of an easy schedule and close wins. So they could do that again. I could see where if you're a fan of the if of the Denver Broncos or the Kansas City Chiefs or you're one of the four or five people with tickets to the StubHub Center to see the L.A. Chargers, uh, that you might be upset that you're in this division where everyone is trying <laughs> and you have to compete with Miami for a, a wild card spot. But I don't think we can say it's a competitive balance issue until it becomes an issue in more than just one season. Right. But if right? it like becomes there's an a difference issue, between bad teams and giving up teams. But but if it becomes an issue in more than one market, like more than two or three markets per year, then I think it does become a competitive balance issue. And underlying all of this, Aaron, of course, is the realization that getting high draft picks and using them well is the economically responsible thing to do in the NFL because of the last collective bargaining agreement, which created very favorable terms for rookie contracts for teams. You want more draft picks. You want to stockpile the way good teams have. And in order in doing that, yeah, you're mortgaging maybe this year and next year, but you are setting yourself up down the road. So if six or eight or 10 teams start to do this, I wonder, does the NFL need to do something about about the competitive balance risks if, if they exist? Oh, absolutely. But we can't jump to that conclusion because this is the first time we've ever really seen more than one team doing it at a time. So I don't, you know, I don't think we can forward to that question until we actually see that happen. I would want to see more than one team doing it for more than one year before I started to get worried. The other problem is, is it the whole point of tanking to get high draft picks so you can draft players like Sammy Watkins? <laughs> That's what I don't understand. The whole point is to get players like Sammy Watkins, not trade players like Sammy Watkins away. Oh, you bills. Oh, you bills. Um, <laughs> another question that I have is there's this cult around Sam Hinkie and the NBA among Sixers fans um, really buying into the process and the idea that we're being bad for a reason. There's intentionality here. And we're going to be good and we're smart. Like we are like outsmarting everyone in the league. Do you have a sense you have very analytically minded, intelligent fan base of people that follow your work? Do you have a sense that fans of these particular teams are buying in to these trades and are willing to accept their franchises being bad for a couple of seasons with the idea that they'll be better in the long term? Some people are. Look, some people have a hard time understanding the idea that uh, like front offices change. I keep reading stuff where people talk about, oh, the Browns are so dumb. They drafted Johnny Manziel. That was a completely different front office. Th these people didn't draft Johnny Manziel just because they work in the same building. Um, I also I'll bet you it helps Browns fans to the fact that the other two teams in town have been successful, that they can kind of deal with this a little better. Right. Like they love the Browns and they want hope for the future, but it's not like they don't have winning teams to root for in other sports. Uh, and I think Jets fans are just so hope feel so hopeless that they're like, all right, we'll go through a year of this. My guess is Bills fans don't know what the heck is going on because none of us knew what the heck was going on until three weeks ago. The Bills are the tanking experiment that doesn't really doesn't make sense to me because it just came from out of nowhere. 
Well, and similarly, the Jets tanking experiment doesn't seem to make sense because as your piece in, in uh, Football Outsiders Almanac explains, they did this so incompetently um, that when they had an opportunity to truly tank to improve the team in the long run, they did the opposite. They signed more older players. They got older. They got worse. Right. That's why Cleveland has a coherent plan. The Jets have a coherent plan that is incoherent if you look back more than six months. Buffalo's plan seems to be have lasted like three weeks. So that's why I think the Cleveland one, that's why Cleveland fans, I think, can deal with this better because it's a clear plan. And from the people that the Browns hired, it was clear this was the plan. And it makes some sense. And and also, unlike the Jets and the Bills, Cleveland is starting to see the results. Three first round picks, all 21 years old, plus a young quarterback in the second round. You're starting to actually see the young talent show up. We're not seeing them doing their thing yet, but we will hopefully in a year or two. Out of Miles Garrett and Joku and Peppers, two of those three guys are probably going to be really good players. So you're going to actually see the results. They're starting to see the results. All right, last question. I want to get back to the the idea of scheduling and whether the NFL should do anything here um, preemptively. I mean, the NFL could implement a draft lottery. You could take all the teams that don't make the playoffs, throw them in a hat, and do a weighted ping pong ball situation the way the NBA does. And the second component there would be to get rid of this anachronistic scheduling mechanism, um, playing two teams in the same division, which was born years ago out of this desire to keep rivalries like Dallas and Washington alive. Isn't it time to move beyond these artificial constructions of divisions? And as somebody suggested, why not just let have every team play every other team in your conference once and then play one out of conference game a year? Why not move toward a more balanced schedule the way other sports have tried to do? I'm going to surprise you by being old school. I believe in division rivalries. I think that they're more fun. I see the way people care about them. I know the classic battles between the Patriots and Jets and the Patriots and Dolphins. I know the history of the Bears and Packers. I'm a believer in division rivalries. I know that, yes, it kind of does lead to sometimes slightly unfair wild cards. I know it leads to seven and nine teams occasionally winning divisions. But I am a believer in, uh, I am a believer in division rivalries. I think that I would rather see rules that prevented teams from tanking for more than a year than I would change the schedule and get rid of the classic rivalry, the setup. Aaron Schatz is the proprietor of Football Outsiders, and he's the editor of the Football Outsiders Almanac 2017. You can find that on the Football Outsiders website. Thank you very much for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ed Cunningham's life has, it is fair to say, revolved around football. He captained a national championship team at the University of Washington in 1991. He was taken in the third round of the NFL draft. He played 61 games over five seasons as an offensive lineman for the Cardinals and Seahawks. And he went on to a long career as an analyst on college games on ESPN. 
But it's also fair to say that Cunningham's feelings about football have been conflicted for a long time. He actually left the NFL by choice, and before this season, he left ESPN by choice. As he told John Branch of the New York Times last week, the real crux of this is I just don't think the game is safe for the brain. To me, it's unacceptable. Ed Cunningham joins us now. Hey, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Ed, we first talked nine years ago after my NFL book came out when I wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated describing the misery for players of life in the NFL. And you actually wrote a letter to the magazine affirming that misery. What changed for you over the last decade to get you to the point that you would finally decide to stop being part of the football industrial complex to quit this to quit this good job? Yeah, I, I think it was a confluence of two things. Uh, back in the spring, when uh, a bunch of colleagues got laid off, and and you know these were writers and on-air people, so you know it was really kind of close to the bone. Um, and I got a text from a boss saying, "Hey." obviously a very hard day. Your job is okay. Call me at the end of the day and we'll catch up. And, you know, I spent that day really soul searching and I, I, it was almost that usual suspects. I don't know if you guys know the movie, uh, usual suspects moment, um, where I looked at the board of my life and I said, wait a minute, I I really am conflicted here. I, I feel ethically conflicted sitting in a seat that is, um, you know, the color commentator, you are a cheerleader for the sport, not by, uh, it's just the way the job is constructed. You have to drive the audience to the next play to the next game. And that was the part that conflicted for me was um, being in that cheerleader spot and people losing their jobs. Uh, I just didn't feel ethically I could, could keep that job, frankly. I think that was the, the kind of um, uh, the final straw for me. So the time story by John Branch mentioned several instances in the past where you've been highly critical of um, coaches and and mm. have noted injuries that have happened and and the way that they've been treated and seems like this did not necessarily play well with football fans who did not want to hear a dissenting voice and did not want someone to take mm. attention away from you know, the X's and O's. Was that yeah. the sense that you got over the years that fans didn't like the kind of value that you thought you were adding there? Well, I think it, it, yeah, the answer is yes, the ones that are vocal about it, right? I mean, who knows kind of what the people who don't go on chat boards or don't make themselves sure. heard. And, and I'm not saying that as a disparaging thing. I'm just saying from the subset that I read, and I did read very uh, conscientiously and by choice, I read all fan, dis- even around this issue, after I do games, I always read fan discussion boards. Um, I, I welcome that. It's not a conversation if all, all I'm doing is kind of spouting off. And the pushback on would he please stop talking about safety uh, was pretty um, universal. And what I came to realize is they're not wrong. They're not wrong. That uh, that um, job, while you can comment when the thing happens, you do just need to move on to the next play. And the fans sitting watching the game, they're not watching a 30 for 30. They're not watching a, um, you know, a studio show uh, focused on safety. They're watching the game and they're, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. In the context of a game, an injury is an interruption 
of what should be happening. It's not the focus. It becomes fodder for a commercial break. It's a time to step away and sell some products. And the more that you focus on the thing that is not what's supposed to be happening on the field, the more annoyed that fans of the teams are going to be, presumably. Yeah. And I, and I get that. And I read a bunch of that and that was part of this uh, choice. They, I think what they helped me see was, wait, your, your role's pretty defined here, buddy. You know, and there, and, and again, that's because of how it's constructed. It's not, um, uh, anybody's fault. It's just kind of how the job has been constructed over time. And that's what didn't feel. Uh, that's what was sort of rubbing for me is I am going to go tell more sports stories as a producer and a writer. And, you know, I, I, I'm very active. Almost everything I produce is around either football specifically or around sports or around competition. I'm going to continue to be fascinated and do these stories and be around them. But that particular role, I think they were right. I think I was kind of out over my skis a bit. My sense is that football announcers, whether folks on ESPN or other networks, are much more conservative, both politically and in their sense of what football is and should be, than print writers. And I'm not really sure why that would be. So I'm curious of, um, just from your sense of working in the business for long, for, for so long, if you agree with that premise, and if so, um, why you think that is? One thing that I had to sort of define for myself before I chose this is football is a culture um, with the sport as sort of the reason to get together. I've had many people, one of my neighbors said, uh, you know, the only thing I could really do with my dad that was fun for both of us was to go to USC football games. And so like that level of a culture, ultimately, I think people, and they should, are going to dig their heels in and be kind of resistant to change. Um, and I think, you know, that's probably what, what we're seeing. And I've certainly seen some of that, you know, I had a, a, a colleague in the sports media, a guy who does local radio in Phoenix really kind of attacked me, say, well, should I feel guilty for doing my job? And it was a very fair question by him. So I think it's, it's, it's about, you want to change a culture. Um, and I, it's not, I'm saying, I'm not saying I want to change a culture, but this is not a head injury thing. I think it's a cultural thing. And I think when you do that, People dig their heels in, and I think the people you're speaking about, they're deep in this, right? They played the game. They coached the game. They're making their living on the game, and I get that. Now, Ed, you've said that you don't intend to become an anti-football evangelist here. Oh, no. No, 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 no. What do you think? Part of the conversation. what, What do you think should happen to the game? What changes would you like to see in how it's played and how it's coached and how it's covered? Well, let's start with the, the, the sport in the room. The helmet is a weapon. Functionally, the helmet is a weapon because it is so hard. And what people are blown away by when they first hold one, so heavy, that what you do as a player is you use your helmet as a weapon. Pete Carroll, about four or five years ago, did something that you don't do as a football, you didn't do as a football coach, which is show people how you're doing something different and better and more efficiently. But with rugby tackling, which quickly in the old form, well, I call it the old form, in, in some forms of tackling, you actually are taught to lead the runner with your helmet so that the helmet becomes part of the post that stops the energy of the player, mm-hmm. right? 
in rugby tackling, you put your head behind the player. You use your energy and inertia to more wrestle them to the ground instead of just trying to cold stop them with your head. What about kids playing football? So I have, and, and this was before, um, you know, I, I made this statement. I have, I have never been a proponent of kids playing before high school. I didn't play before high school uh, because I was sort of bigger and my mom was, I was just going to play against older kids all the time. Um, and a bunch of my teammates in the NFL, I think if you polled NFL players, you'd be surprised at how late they started playing. So I've just never been a proponent of, of playing physical contact football before high school. And then what I would say is go to a practice, go to a foot, go a full pad football practice with your, your son and go observe from up close. Stand around, watch it, ask questions, um, you know, just be educated and, and make decisions from being there, seeing it. Don't, this is, this is not chess. This is not a chess club. You cannot drop your son off um, and, and go away. Be involved, be engaged, um, and get close to it because it is a different sport from in the stands than it is right next to it. Um, and just, you know, be around that. But, yeah, before high school, I've just never been a proponent of that. One thing that we haven't focused on specifically is that you're a promoter and a leading voice around college football specifically, not just football, the right. the larger entity. Um, ESPN paid $7.5 billion for the playoff. There's an enormous amount of money around this sport that is not um, trickling down to the players. And I wonder mm. if you ever thought about that or, or did soul searching around the concept of amateurism and the fact that, you know, you're watching a guy from Michigan or Michigan state or wherever lying on the field hurt, um, you know, doing this game for an audience of millions with coaches that are being paid millions and the, the player who's, who's injured isn't getting paid. I thought about it all the time. <laughs> I mean, it was never not thought about, honestly. You know, I was there. I was, you know, I, I was just as uh, the kind of media complex was being built around sports was kind of the mid-80s to early 90s, which was my playing career, um, or to mid-90s, um, and then right into my broadcasting career. And I was a part of it. You know, I was, I was a part of that machinery. Um, so I thought about it all the time and I still think about it. These are kids. If we're going to call them amateurs and we're going to construct it as amateurs, then we just need to say they're kids. They're, we're, we're giving them no rights. And so let's treat them as such. And, uh, I think of that change and having kids, obviously, I think sort of brought that into focus for me as well. Right. And the, the conflict and, and following up on what Josh asked is, I guess, is there a moral difference between what, ESPN and other networks present around college football, given the structure of it, versus the way the networks present professional football. I mean, we've seen professional players quit in the last few yeah. years. Chris Borland of the 49ers, John Urschel of the Ravens this summer, over the weekend here in Washington, a uh, second-year player yeah. named Sua Cravens walked away from a $4 million contract. I mean, so is there a different moral calculus here? and? I don't know that paying college players absolves anyone of the moral calculus of, is it safe for 18 and 19 year olds to be doing this? Um, but it is a, a different construct. And I imagine that, that 
affected your thinking? I think for me, it absolutely is. Here's what's worthy is you're asking that question and we're all checking our morals. So I think we've all been sort of going to this place and, you know, maybe uh, a Chris Borland was a really big one for me. I'm, I'm glad you brought up his name. Um, I, I feel like Chris Borland challenged me directly with how I felt. How so? I covered Chris in college, met him a couple times, couldn't be a nicer, smarter, good guy. Like the kind of guy I'd have been pals with if I was a teammate with. And the guy could flat ball. <laughs> He's like the shortest guy on the field and the best player on the field. He was great, and I loved it. And, you know, he went in the NFL, and I sort of, I was right. You know, he had this great, you know, because I kind of liked if I could see a diamond in the rough and kind of pump him. We did two or three games his last year, junior year or something. Um, and when he stepped away, I was like, wow, that's a thoughtful, smart guy. And the next season, which I think was last season, I got back on the plate, went back, and did a job that I didn't feel comfortable with. So in a way, I think we're all being checked. And I would, you know, I would say mine got checked by Borland. Um, and, you know, it's a just kind of paying that forward. Let's all look in the mirror. Let's all talk about it. You also mentioned in the Times piece, your former teammate, Dave Duerson, who mm-hmm. shot himself in the chest. Um, so his brain could be studied after his yeah, death. And yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure that was devastating as his teammate. How much did that uh, play into your um, evolution as well? You know, um, so that was one of the you know the usual suspects. It, you know, he was looking at the board behind the detective. That was you know Dave was one of those. So my picture of Dave, we were flying home. I, I think I played one or two seasons with Dave. He was a a bear for a long time with Buddy Ryan, and then when Buddy Ryan came, it was our head coach, he came and played with us after the Cardinals. We were flying home from a East Coast game, and we'd gotten beaten. It was a tough game, and uh, I walked by Dave, and he was sitting there studying how to be a McDonald's franchisee while he was flying home. He was studying the, the book you have to study to go take a test to buy a McDonald's. And I sat and chatted with him. I'm like, wait, you know, that's cool. And we were, you know, so he became a mentor, someone that I saw sort of always had a plan. And so, which I, you know, kind of, I have always prided myself on. And so I liked Dave a lot. I looked, I looked up to Dave and he was a really good teammate and fun to be around. And when he passed again, we were just kind of, I think it was 2006 or seven, you know, we're all just kind of chugging along, right? We didn't know kind of what we know now. And uh, so, yeah, he was definitely a big kind of, um, uh, you know, picture it's i just picture him in that it was like he was a coach like row 27 c against the window everyone else is asleep and he's reading the mcdonald's franchise email all right i think that there's you know really strong argument for doing what you did the strongest being that it's what you believe and what you want to do but i would also say that at least intellectually there's a counter argument here which is that you've correctly noted that the analyst role is more of a cheerleader one but you carved out a different role, and mm. I think you had a different voice and a different perspective. And in a world in which everyone is doing the same thing and saying the same thing and making the same out of this job, it's really valuable for fans to have a different voice and a different perspective. Now, if you go to work and you hate it and you mm. feel like you can't do it anymore, then that's one thing. But did you consider, like, actually... I am saying things that need to be said. And if 
I'm not there. Nobody else is going to say them. Yeah, I, I feel like I've worked really hard to sort of serve that role, and I appreciate you uh, saying that. Um, I think I worked really hard to do that for a long time. I, you know, John Branch, the guy who wrote the piece in the New York Times, he went back to 2007 when I um, was very critical of a paneling of a Stanford quarterback. And, you know, it was like that was a decade. And, you know, you kind of see the scope of what I was hoping to do. And at the same time, realizing that it was a bit of a square peg in a round hole, you know, and it is not fair ultimately to the fan, which is your job as the color analyst is to bring stories and, and perspective to the fan. It does become a little unfair to them. The I, fan I will live. The fan is going to live. <laughs> the fan needs however, to be changed, doesn't he? However, well, however, there's other ways to do that, right? And that's what I'm actually really engaged in. So almost everything I'm producing, almost anything I would do on camera again is going to be in and around sports and the sport culture, and a lot of it directly with football. In doing that, in being a sort of voice of conscience on a broadcast, did you get pushback from ESPN about what you were saying? Here's what's really cool for me. Um, the opposite of that. I was challenged to get better and sharper and smarter and more thoughtful in how I, not just me, all of us, um, our department, I, you know, I can't speak for any other departments. Our department um, has always been very, um, uh, sort of uh, give a, they give us assets. I went to train as a, as an official. I went to learn how in an official's meeting, how they, how they uh, do the replay, not just on targeting and such, but others like we were pushed and I was pushed specifically because the boss I had, this guy Ed Placey, um, he really valued that I did documentary work and all that other. So he kind of forced this stuff on me. And, and, the, and the push was, Say something mean of meaningful, have, do your homework, know what you're talking about, and then finally, be a part of the conversation. This conversation is going on. Um, be in it. Right. Well, and ultimately, the goal as an announcer could be to influence the way the game is coached, the way the game is officiated, the, game, the way the game is adjudicated. What I, and, and you asked, was I critiqued? The answer is yes, I was cr critiqued quite often. Um, at ESPN, and the critique actually was, you are not there to influence. You are not there to lead by emotion. Sure. You are there to give analysis. And, and yes, that was, you know, to the second part of your question, did I get critiqued? Yeah, I did a lot, but it was exactly that. That's not your role. So pump the brakes, let the replay go, take a deep breath. And, you know, I think that's the, uh, the square peg and a round hole of that job was it was hard for me to slow down, take a breath, you know, um, uh, not detach. You never want to detach, but just, you know, be the, the, be the analyst, not, you know, involved emotionally. And that, that was the critique I'd get, you know, a couple times a season, frankly. Ed Cunningham played in the NFL. He was a commentator on football broadcasts for two decades, and he resigned from his job at ESPN last week. He's also a TV and film producer in Los Angeles, including on the Academy Award-winning documentary Undefeated about an inner-city high school football team, and I didn't know this, on the fantastic doc, The King of Kong, about mm. Donkey Kong. Ed, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the time. Now it is time for After Balls, and I'm sure most of you have been waiting for the whole show for us to get back to the Faroe Islands. Stefan, yeah. you never left. No. 
What do you have for us, Faroe Islands-wise? They're doing okay in qualifying. They've got eight points in their group. Switzerland's got 24. So they're hanging in there. Two wins, two draws, four, uh, four losses. Go Faroe Islands. The Faroe Islands uh, team nickname? Let's go with the Faroe Islands team nickname. It's not super creative, Josh. It's the Lanslidid. 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 Yeah, I'm going to go with Lanslidid. It means the national team. Faroe Islands, I appreciate your grit, but step it up when it comes to your nickname. I think we can agree on that. They need a better nickname. Agreed. Stefan, what is your Lanslidid? I know we are all a little bit exasperated by the Colin Kaepernick conversation, which after two truly execrable pieces last week, one by Sports Illustrated's Albert Breer, the stenographer of record for borderline self-deluding, borderline racist NFL executives, and another one by some guy in the New York Times opinion pages, has bottomed out. I, for one, keep hoping for a smoking gun collusion email from Jerry Jones to Roger Goodell or from Steve Bashotti to God that would settle this once and for all. I don't think we're going to get that, at least not right now. But we should not let this subject die, and we should find more ways of demonstrating the absurdity of Colin Kaepernick not being given even a chance to throw a football during an NFL training camp this summer. Here is my little contribution to that effort. Every story about Kaepernick has, of course, noted the shitty quarterbacks who have jobs instead of him, and you know them by their fruits. Mike Glennon, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Geno Smith, Blaine Gabbert, etc. But I want to go beyond the five or ten usual suspects. So I wondered how many quarterbacks in total have been given an opportunity to play in the NFL since Colin Kaepernick opted out of his contract with the 49ers in March. I spent a chunk of Monday afternoon, Josh, examining the final rosters and the transaction logs of all 32 NFL teams. Monday chunk. While I was watching. <laughs> Monday afternoon chunk is the new Stefan Fatsis column. column. Yeah. By my official count, Josh, NFL teams have employed a total of 140 quarterbacks not named Colin Kaepernick since the spring. That is right, 140. Now, to be clear, that's not 140 different quarterbacks. Some quarterbacks, because they are just that good, Josh, were given opportunities with more than one team. There are at least 10 of those, which brings our number down to a mere 130 quarterbacks, give or take, who NFL team executives deemed were worthy of a contract and hence more worthy of a contract than 29-year-old former Super Bowl quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Some of these quarterbacks were rookies who could be stashed on a team's practice squad, like Alex Torgerson, former Penn Quaker Alex Torgerson, who was cut by the Falcons and immediately picked up by the Washington team because the NFL does not make Alex Torgerson wait by the phone very long. Other quarterbacks were camp arms, guys brought into training camp because you need three or four quarterbacks, even if you already know which two you plan to keep. And sure, some guys were cheap and available, and some were known entities to their coaches. But let's consider that number one more time, Josh. 130 different quarterbacks. That is a lot of quarterbacks. If you thought you had heard of all the Blaine Gabberts and Dan Orlovskis who got opportunities to earn quarterback jobs in the NFL this year, well, I bet that unless you are an alumnus of West Texas A&M or Monmouth of Illinois, you have not heard of all of these guys. Rather, though, than just reading a long list of names of quarterbacks that you've never heard of, Josh, I thought we could play a little game that I call NFL quarterback 
or PGA Tour golfer? Are you ready? I'm ready. Now, Josh, you might have a little advantage here because you are a fan of college football. <laughs> but let's see how it goes. Sorry. Sorry to cheat. Let's see how it goes. All right. NFL quarterback or PGA Tour golfer? Chad Collins or Nick Mullins? Who is the NFL quarterback? This is going to be too easy for me because I know, you know I, yeah. Nick Mullins went to Southern Miss, right? Yeah, I was trying to get rid of all the Southern quarterbacks, <laughs> but I guess I failed on that one. All right. NFL quarterback or PGA Tour golfer? Dustin Vaughn or Blaine Barber? <laughs> Vince, he's sort of the this bl- one I actually don't know, but I'm going to uh, guess that Blaine Barber is the golfer. Blaine Barber is the golfer. You are two for two, Josh. All right. NFL quarterback or PGA Tour golfer? Dane Evans or Brad Fritch? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to say Dane Evans is the football player. He is. Wow. That was a guess, though, right? That was a guess. You have not heard of Dane Evans. No. All right. NFL quarterback or PGA Tour golfer, Chris Smith or Taylor Heineke? Uh, Taylor Heineke is a football player. Oh, Josh, you're too good. This is a problem. All right. Let's do a couple more. NFL quarterback or PGA Tour golfer, David Fales or Ryan Palmer? David Fales is a football player. <sighs> Josh Woodrum or Troy Madison? <laughs> that one I definitely don't know. But, oh, Troy Madison with two Ts? That guy's a golfer. How do you know that? I don't know. I <laughs> <laughs> um, watch a lot of leaderboards in my day. Alex Tanney or Bryce Mulder? Bryce Mulder is a golfer. So I would say, just in your defense, yeah. Some of these have been guesses, and I don't know like anything about any of these people. I just maybe seen their names once, so it's not like I actually know like uh, who these people are. Or Skyler their life Howard stories. or Tyler Aldridge? Skyler or Tyler? Skyler Howard went to West Virginia. He's a quarterback. Yeah, he has a quarterback. Yeah, that was too big. I was going to put the smaller <laughs> schools too. Sean Renfrey or Tommy Ganey? Tommy Ganey is uh, a golfer. You're good. Tim Petrovich or Mike Berkovici? Mike Berkovici went to Arizona State, football player, I think. And finally, let's see if we can run the table, Josh. Josh Sendon or Mitch Leidner? Mitch Leidner is a football player in Minnesota. All right, we're out of bad quarterbacks. Josh ran the table. I had not heard of any of these golfers or quarterbacks. So for me, I would have been 50% at best. Uh, thanks, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> I should have uh, have pulled someone in off of Slate's copy desk. (laughs) That might have been more successful. Yeah. Josh, what's your lens did? On Monday night at the U.S. Open, Roger Federer left the court after winning the first two sets against Philip Kohlschreiber. Federer didn't appear to be in any distress physically, so the ESPN announcers were a bit mystified about what was going on. Brad Gilbert, who was sitting courtside, said it probably wasn't anything to worry about because his colleague Mary Jo Fernandez did not look concerned. Indeed, Federer went on to win in straight sets, and he told Gilbert in his post-match interview that he'd gone off the court to get a massage on his bottom, and he didn't want to drop trow in front of thousands of fans at Ash Stadium. Um, of course, I'm going to devote this afterball now to conflicts of interest and in tennis rather than Roger Federer's bottom, because I just know what the fans out here want. Um, Gilbert didn't explain that aside about Mary Jo Fernandez. So you kind of had to be in the know to understand what he was talking about, which was that Fernandez, who's been calling tennis free ESPN forever, is married to Tony Godsick, who is a player agent who represents Federer. 
um, as well as Juan Martin Del Potro and Grigor Dimitrov. This is what us ethical busybodies in the media call a conflict of interest. And it is one of about a collective 80 bajillion in the ESPN broadcast booth during these major tennis tournaments. Fernandez was also for a time the captain of the U.S. Federation Cup team. And so was calling matches played by women she needed to convince to play for her in this international tournament. Another broadcaster, Darren Cahill, coaches uh, women's star Simona Halep. John McEnroe for a time coached Milos Raonic. Though I don't believe ESPN ever had Cahill or McEnroe calling a match played by uh, a player that they coached at the time they coached them. Perhaps the biggest conflict belonged to Patrick McEnroe, who for <laughs> six years was the head of player development at the USTA, like the big one of the biggest positions at the U.S. Tennis Association, which runs the U.S. Open. And he was calling the U.S. Open at the time when he was basically helping to run the U.S. Open. I bet he thought it was a really good tournament. Um, as Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch has written, conflicts of interest in tennis go back to the agent Donald Dell. And Deitch wrote, Dell provided commentary of matches involving players he represented and tournaments his firm owned and managed. Deitch also added in that 2016 SI piece, if you ask me whether I believe an analyst such as Fernandez is giving you unfiltered commentary on Federer, though she coaches at the Olympics, I guess she also was involved in Olympics coaching, not just Fed Cup. Um, he says, I do not believe you're getting unfiltered commentary. He also wrote, if you ask me if I think ESPN tennis announcers have pulled punches with players they work with, I do. It would be hard to come up with an issue, Stefan, that sports fans care about less than whether tennis broadcasters have a conflict of interest. And I would generally put myself in that category. Who has time really to be outraged about this when so many other outrages abound in sports and other fields of inquiry? But there's been a sub-phenomenon at this year's U.S. Open, which genuinely, legitimately has annoyed me. And that is, um, all right, data point number one. On Friday night, John and Patrick McEnroe are on the air. They're talking about how Roger Federer has spent one of his off days practicing at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy on Randall's Island. They're talking about this for a really long time and talking about how great the John McEnroe Tennis Academy is. That seems like really bad. You shouldn't be able to do that. Number two is Madison Keys is in the quarterfinals now as of the time we're recording this. Really great young American tennis player trained at the Chris Ever Tennis Academy in Florida. Oh, who's calling matches for ESPN? During the matches, they're like congratulating Chris Everett, like great tennis academy, Madison Keys. She went to your tennis academy, Chris Everett Tennis Academy. Madison Keys went to this tennis academy. Go to the tennis academy. It's really getting on my nerves. It's it's hard to think of an equivalent in any other broadcast on television. It would be like if after the debates on CNN, like Paul Begala was like, man, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders just learned so much from the Paul Begala like dream debate academy that I run in Florida. I mean, that that's not a great example, but I think it's evidence that there are no other great examples of people just like hawking their shit during uh, matches where they're supposed to be neutral arbiters and announcers. So I'm not going to get ESPN to stop doing this. They're never going to stop doing this. But in the interest of counterprogramming, if you can't beat them, say bad things about them, Stefan. Mm -hmm. So I was I managed to get a little bit of oppo research here. John McEnroe Tennis Academy, um, a former maintenance worker 
brought a uh, suit against them claiming that he routinely worked overtime and was not paid for it. John McEnroe Tennis Academy doesn't pay overtime. Allegedly, confidential settlement agreement was reached in 2016. Remember, John McEnroe Tennis Academy, confidential settlement agreement. Chris Ever Tennis Academy. Uh, CNN did a piece on uh, Madison Keys. Mentioned the estimated annual fee to go to the Chris Ever Tennis Academy between $40,000 and $50,000 a year. Madison Keys said, my mom did not want me living in a dorm. My mom was like, I don't want a 15-year-old raising my 10-year-old. She also said other things, but I'm going to cut this uh, deceptively. Madison Keys paid so much money. Her parents, if she hadn't been a success, can you imagine what that could have done to the family's finances? She was being supervised by 15-year-olds when she was 10 years old. The Chris Ever Tennis Academy. Do you really trust them with your children? Do you want your children to go to the Chris Ever Tennis Academy? The Chris Ever Tennis Academy. Stefan. I'm not sending my kid to the Chris Ever <laughs> Tennis Academy. The decision has been made. That is our show for today. You know, I realized my mistake. I think I could have stumped you had I not put Alex Torgerson in the main body of the afterball. I should have saved him for the quiz. Would you have gotten Alex Torgerson? Because he sounds like he could be a golfer. He does, yeah. Ruining afterballs year after year since 2010, 2009. The long, strong record. All right, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Mom and Dad Are Fighting, on which Gabe Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddlers to teens. They answer listener questions, share their own parenting triumphs and fails, and talk through parenting issues in the news. To listen and subscribe, go to slate.com slash mom and dad. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Do you know where Alex Tanny went to college? Don't. Ha! Monmouth of Illinois, and I already said it.